You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. And I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. As we prepare to launch our next season of Climate Rising, we're releasing a few bonus episodes where we're rebroadcasting some business and climate conversations happening elsewhere at Harvard. Today, we'll hear an interview that my colleague, HBS professor Forrest Reinhardt and I did for Harvard Business Review's IdeaCast podcast, which was hosted by Sarah Green Carmichael. This interview is based on an article Forrest and I wrote for Harvard Business Review called Managing Climate Change, Lessons from the U.S. Navy, which we'll link to in the show notes at climaterising.org. Since we published that article on HBR, climate pressure has continued to increase on naval installations. The U.S. Department of Defense recently released a report called DOD Installation Exposure to Climate Change at Home and Abroad, which found that the U.S. Navy faces more exposure to climate change than the other military branches, from drought to heat to coastal flooding. And this summer, both chambers of Congress passed increases for spending on military climate adaptation and resilience projects, though agreement still needs to be reached on the final amount. With more extreme weather likely to further threaten its bases around the world, the fact that the U.S. Navy has already been thinking about climate change puts them ahead of a lot of other organizations. In this episode, Forrest and I talk about how this giant global enterprise that owns and operates billions of dollars of assets at sea level is adjusting to a world of climate change. We discuss how climate change poses a dual threat to the Navy because it affects both the demand and supply of the Navy's operations. Climate change is increasing the demand for the Navy's services as it threatens conflict and creates more humanitarian crises. At the same time, climate change jeopardizes its bases and thus threatens the Navy's ability to supply its services which is leading to lots of discussions about adaptation and resilience. We discuss what the private sector can learn from the U.S. Navy's experience planning for a world undergoing climate change. Here is Sarah Green Carmichael interviewing Forrest Reinhardt and me. Welcome to the HBR IdeaCast from Harvard Business Review. I'm Sarah Green Carmichael. Picture some companies you think are doing the best at fighting climate change and getting ready for it. Maybe you're imagining Patagonia's 1% for the planet. Or maybe Starbucks growing pest-resistant coffee plants. Or Unilever's work to take carbon out of the supply chain. Our guests today say there's a different sort of enterprise that's a model for managing climate change. In fact, it's on the front lines of rising sea levels because it operates at sea level. The United States Navy is elevating docks building advanced storm warning systems, and increasingly powering missions with the sun instead of with fossil fuels. Businesses can actually learn a great deal from the American military's forward-looking approach, according to Harvard Business School professors Forrest Reinhardt and Michael Toffel. They're the authors of Managing Climate Change, Lessons from the U.S. Navy, in the July-August 2017 issue of Harvard Business Review. And they're here with us now. Forrest, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. And Mike, thanks to you, too. Great. Great to be here. Why is the Navy preparing now for climate change? Because it's taking place. So most firms in the United States, at least, when they think about climate change, have been thinking mostly about mitigation. That is, they've been thinking about reducing their own carbon footprints, reducing the amount of emissions for which they're responsible. And that's important. But mitigation is no longer a substitute for adaptation. We have to think of them as complements. What's really the difference there? So mitigation 
are activities that reduce an organization's impact on uh, climate change. Whereas adaptation uh, takes for granted that activities are occurring and what investments do we need to do to adapt to the changes that are ensuing. And organizations, whether they're firms or the U.S. military, have not only to be thinking about their carbon footprints, but also the changes in their own physical environments, which are already taking place as a result of the buildup of our carbon dioxide and other waste gases in the atmosphere. You you argue in the article that climate change will actually increase demand for the Navy's services. That's sort of an economic way of putting it. Why is climate change going to do that? Well, for two reasons, at least. One is that the the Navy is our primary waterborne military force. And as the planet warms, the amount of water is going to increase. That is, the the area near the poles, which until quite recently has been closed to marine traffic for much, if not all of the year, is going to be increasingly open as the ice melts. So you think the last time the Western world really encountered a new ocean was in the early part of the 1500s. And the same kinds of opportunities and conflicts are going to exist in the Arctic. A second reason is that climate change is potentially destabilizing to societies, especially societies which are not particularly rich and not particularly well-governed. And as those societies become increasingly stressed by things like drought and storm severity, the kinds of behaviors that call the military into action are going to become more frequent, whether those are wars or internal conflicts or just need for humanitarian assistance. And this is why the military refers to climate change as a threat multiplier. Many have made the connection between the breakdown of societies in the Middle East, in particular in Syria, for example, uh, to be attributed to changing rainwater and other precipitation patterns. So you see these problems right now behind uh, the growth of ISIS. You see these problems also with the migration into Europe and Europe's struggle with what to do with these migrants. These are examples of issues that climate scientists suggest are only going to get worse in the coming decades. When you were conducting the research for this article, did you get a sense of the U.S. Navy being kind of on the cutting edge of this? Or is are they just kind of part of a larger international effort that's all happening at the same time? Officials in the Navy with whom we spoke are worried about the Russians' lead in readiness for an open Arctic. More generally, however, militaries are alike in the sense that they none of them can be romantic about the world that we live in and the world that we are creating. So they all have to live in this fact-based world. They all have to do as much research as they can to figure out what the world is going to look like in mid-century because we and other militaries right now are building the assets with which we will fight the wars of mid-century if they exist. When you guys think about where we could be in 30 or 60 years with Arctic sea lanes potentially opening up, what do you see potentially happening there? What would the Navy like to see, the U.S. Navy like to see happen there? Well, one thing to remember is that we actually have a lot of experience in the Arctic. It's just that experience is underwater. So we've for a long time been sending submarines up there to patrol and to figure out how much pressure is needed. They've been measuring sea ice there because one of the reasons is they need to figure out um, 
how much pressure is required to launch missiles through the ice in order to potentially target uh, enemies. So they've been studying this issue. They've been there for a long time. But what's different, as Forrest mentioned, is the navigability piece, which requires a whole different set of infrastructure. So that requires bases, that requires icebreakers, most of which the U.S. does not yet have in place. And there's a big discussion now, or increasing discussion in Congress even, about why is it that the Russians have upwards of 50 icebreakers and we have something like two that are serviceable for Arctic conditions? Do either of you have a sense of how accurate the forecasts this point on global warming have been? So directionally, the forecasts have been correct. There's a lot of uncertainty about the climate system. There's a lot that we don't understand. We do, however, extremely well understand the basic physics. That's been known for a century. And while we don't know what next week's weather is going to be out in Montana, and we don't know how fast exactly the Arctic sea ice will diminish, we do know that on average, in the long term, the climate in Montana will be hotter and drier and the Arctic sea ice will diminish. And the, the Navy historically, like the Army and the Air Force and the Marines, have been in the business of ensuring the rest of us against long-term threats, even if the probability of the threat being realized is far, far less than one. And that's what we pay them for. That's what we want them to do. And that's what we should want them to do here. You guys conducted a lot of the research for this under Barack Obama, a president who was very accepting of the science on climate change, who signed the Paris Climate Agreement. The current commander-in-chief has said in many different ways on many different occasions that he does not accept the scientific consensus on climate change. Do you think it's a challenge for the Navy to be, I mean, euphemistically, we could call it managing up. <laughs> you know, did they have a problem when their their boss essentially says, this isn't a priority, it's not happening? Well, I think the way that the Navy has been going about their work with respect to climate change has been fact-based. It's been based on the best science. And it's really, at the end of the day, all about force readiness. So, which is which has widespread support across the political spectrum. Uh, so when you think about addressing climate change from a force readiness perspective, it's really not a political issue. It, it, it's not cast in political language. When we were in the Pentagon interviewing some of the senior folks responsible for these various programs, no one mentioned the president. Uh, it just really wasn't part of the conversation at all. Uh, they took their mandate to be, as Forrest mentioned earlier, about providing the protection for the United States in ways that their expertise guides them. How, how does the Navy's approach compare to the approaches you guys have seen in, you know, for-profit companies? I mean, on the one hand, the Navy has a kind of long-term planning that maybe is not present in a lot of, uh, uh, you know, corporations obsessed with quarterly earnings calls and things like that. But I, so I understand there would be differences, but does anything kind of jump out to you? Yeah, one difference uh, that actually looks like a similarity, but is actually motivated by something different is a lot of companies, as Forrest mentioned earlier, are thinking about mitigating their 
impact on climate change by shifting, for example, to renewable energy to supply their factories or their warehouses or their offices. So they're often doing that from a sense of trying to promote the public goodwill or uh, to be resonant with desires of their employees or of their top managers who want to have a, a green edge to their company. The Navy also is investing in massive amounts of solar to power their bases, but it's not motivated so much by those effects that I just mentioned the private sector is trying to claim. It's really about, in their case, about mission readiness and the resilience of their bases. They want to be sure that as uh, climate change occurs with more intensive storms, that that's not going to knock out the power grids that's few, that supplies their bases. So they're investing in some of these uh, power sources because of their distributed nature, the fact that they can produce power on site and not have to rely on long-distance generating lines. So similar behaviors, but for very different motives. What do you want sort of corporate leaders to take away from what the Navy's doing? Are there ways in which the Navy's example would make it easier for a corporate leader to kind of see how their own company could prepare? Yeah, I would say there are two big things, at least. One is that I mentioned that most companies' climate change policies have been primarily geared toward mitigation. But that's not going to be enough. They need to think about how they're going to adapt to this new world as well. And at the same time, many of the companies have resorted to this no regrets rhetoric. They say, well, of course we're doing the right things. We're doing things that are going to pay for themselves anyway. And that's great. And they should be doing that, of course. But maybe they need to be doing some other things as well. Because if you're if you're only doing making investments that will pay for themselves, no matter what the state of the world turns out to be, then you are not taking advantage of opportunities to make strategic bets, which under the existing understanding of the science are likely to pay off. So I, I would say what I would want firms to take away from what we've learned from the Navy is to think about climate change, not only from a mitigation and adaptation perspective, as Forrest mentioned, but also to sort of cast a lens to ask the question, how will this affect our strategy? How will it affect the demand for our products and services? Um, will it shift the markets where we're expecting demand uh, on the one hand? And then on the supply side is, how will it affect our operations and how will it affect our supply chain? The other question is the question of mitigation and adaptation. The rhetoric has long been, we have to do mitigation to avoid adaptation. And maybe at one point, had we mitigated quickly enough, that might have been the case. But the reality is we haven't. And so now we have to be balancing mitigation and adaptation. It's not an either or, it's really a both. And so companies need to be thinking about that within their own organizations, but I would argue that companies need to be thinking about this from a policy perspective as well. They, I think, need to think about what opinion am I going to have on the policymaking process? Am I going to sit out or am I going to try and use some of the power that the system currently affords them to make a legacy statement on trying to fix this problem in the institutions that are running capitalism right now, which is allowing carbon to be 
a free good, even though it's increasingly creating harm and expected to create more harm as the century unfolds. Mike, is there a company that you think is doing really well at preparing for climate change or mitigating their carbon footprint? I can't point to an organization that, like, there often comes up the question of what is a sustainable organization? And there are, if you ask a thousand people, you'll get 5,000 answers. People just have not really figured out what that means. But, but my definition of that is, is quite simple in a way. It's one that, that uses renewable resources and that doesn't impose pollution faster than nature can absorb it. Right? So there's a resource, like what it brings in and what it puts out. And I am still searching for ideas, and maybe some listeners have some suggestions, of particular companies that fit that that definition. So I haven't so that and so it's broader problem than climate. Um, there are on climate companies have been trying to offset their uh, the amount of carbon that they put out into the atmosphere by. Uh, reforestation projects or trying to reduce uh, deforestation or by investing in trying to cap uh, carbon emissions elsewhere. So there are a host of companies that are coming out describing their activities as carbon neutral by doing these alternative projects. There's probably not enough projects in the world to enable everyone to act that way, which is why it's necessary to green the grid and to to change the power at the source. Are we getting to a point where we have to really make hard trade-offs, do things that are more expensive, um, even if we might, you know, lose money on it? It would be surprising if win-wins were so common that we could have everything that we wanted at the same time. That's not the way we normally think about the world, and it's not, I think, realistic to think that that would be the case here. The idea that the environment can be free if only we think about it more sensibly is almost certainly untrue. And we need to confront those costs. We, we need to acknowledge that living in the world that we aspire to create for our children is going to take investment. It's going to take investment in other kinds of physical infrastructure far from the seacoasts. It's going to take investment in education. It's going to take investment in information technology infrastructure. And it's going to take investment in creating buffers against the deleterious effects of climate change. What if companies just decide to do nothing? I mean, is that a bet in itself? Of course it is. To to decide not to make a bet is itself to make a bet. We all have skin in this game. We cannot avoid it unless we go to the moon. Forrest, what would you say to an executive who says it's fine for the U.S. Navy to be involved in mitigating and adapting to climate change? You know, they don't really have to make financial trade-offs the way my company does. You know, they have a massive budget. It's just a, it's just a totally different thing. My company just could not do that. What would you say to that? At one level, the idea that Firms can learn from the Navy seems crazy. They're so different from one another. I mean, the Navy is a government entity. Most firms are private. The Navy's primary product, if you can call it that, is lethal force delivered anywhere in the world at short notice to compel people to do stuff they don't want to do. 
There is no legitimate firm that does that. Um, at the same time, the fundamental similarity between the leaders of the Navy and the, the other people in the Navy and leaders and other people in firms is that they actually have to live in the world. They don't have the luxury of being ideologues. There are a few people in the political arena who have that luxury, but most of us have to live in the world we as we find it, and we have to prepare for the world that we think we are creating. And we do that with our best understanding of the science. We're not all scientists. Our understanding of the science is incomplete and imperfect, but we need to continue to try to educate ourselves and try to learn more about it and understand what the evidence is that would make us want to change our behavior. Because if we can't answer that question, then we're automatons, not people. When you were studying the Navy, what was the, your sort of favorite example of something they were doing where it sort of gave you hope for the future? It was not exactly an example, but the fact that they were science-based and really attentive to that and not, and not caught up in this bizarre questioning of science and conspiratorial theories that they were confronting the science. They invested in science. They used science from other federal agencies and are making decisions based on there's, yes, there's uncertainty, but that doesn't stop them. And it's an approach that I think rational managers that we try and train at Harvard business school also take and managers around the world take, you know, they take in information and make decisions based on that information. And that information at, at its core is based on facts and science and projections. Right. So more than any one particular example, I was heartened by the energy and diligence and passion that the people we talk to bring to their jobs. They are focused every day, not just in their time at work or at sea, but all the time about how to make us safer and how to make the military a more effective organization at doing the very difficult things it has to do in extremely difficult and challenging environments. And I hope and trust that all of those people that we met and literally millions of others that we didn't meet um, will continue to bring that kind of energy and diligence and zeal to their jobs. It's an extraordinary thing. And if I were to talk about one lesson that firms might take from this Navy example, it would be to try similarly to empower their employees to bring that kind of passion and, and diligence and intelligence to their work. Thank you both so much for the article and for coming in today to talk about it. It was a great pleasure. Thank you for having us. That's Forrest Reinhardt and Michael Toffel. They both teach at Harvard Business School. And they're the co-authors of the new HBR article, Managing Climate Change, Lessons from the U.S. Navy. It's in the July-August 2017 issue of the magazine and on hbr.org. Thanks for listening to the HBR IdeaCast. I'm Sarah Green Carmichael. That was Sarah Green Carmichael's interview with Forrest Reinhardt and me on HBR's podcast, IdeaCast. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. 
We'll be back in two weeks with another bonus episode that looks at what lessons we can learn about preparing our electricity infrastructure for climate impacts in the aftermath of Texas's winter storm in February 2021. See you then.